Matthew chapter 1, we're going to be picking a few things out of verses 1 through 17. As you're turning there, would you also bow with me and let us commend our hearts to Christ that we might be transformed in the time ahead. Our Father, we thank you for the evening and thank you for the opportunity to remember Jesus Christ, to remember his coming, to remember his greatness, his glory, his majesty, his authority, his deity, all of the rights and privileges of heaven that belong to him and how he laid all that aside, not giving up his deity but adding the mantle of His humanity and becoming ever so humble so that He might redeem us. Father, as we consider the Christ child this evening and tomorrow and this weekend, might our hearts be riveted by the One who is King and more humble than any has ever known on this earth. He is the epitome of greatness, and He is the epitome of humility in His coming. Might that transfix us as we worship and as we prepare to come to the table. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. A few years ago, I listened to Walter Isaacson's masterful biography of Albert Einstein. I'm not really scientifically inclined, but I thought the story would be interesting, and indeed it was. Einstein was an incredibly fascinating character in history. And along with the story of Einstein's life, Isaacson includes long explanations of scientific theories developed by Einstein. Though I suppose Isaacson tried to use small words, frankly, I didn't comprehend much of what he was saying about the scientific theory, and I don't remember anything of significance from those discussions now. I just don't get the theory of relativity, quantum theory, or anything else scientific. In fact, I don't even know what I just said. Explaining scientific and eternal and infinite and significant concepts about God in small and finite words is also the task of biblical writers. Consider the task of trying to explain the union of the God-man in the person of Christ. How do you align full deity and full humanity in one man, one God-man? This is Paul's explanation in Philippians 2. Speaking of Christ, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In those verses, those brief, concise Verses, the apostle is speaking about the union of the infinite greatness of God in the humble form of a man. The greatness of the great king of eternity in humble manhood. 
One writer puts it this way, David Wells, in his very helpful book, God in the Whirlwind. He had all the essential characteristics and divining, defining attributes of God. He had the very Godness of God. He was the radiance of the glory of God, the total reality of who God is. And it was He who set aside all of this glory in order to carry out a very costly act of service. That He would strip away His bright glory to become not only incarnate, but someone of little account, unrecognized for who He was, disparaged, rejected, and laughed at by those in power. A person of no status, though he was the very center of the universe and its creator, is an expression of humility so deep that words are inadequate to grasp it. Yet this is only part of the picture. Christ obscured his divine attributes, putting them into abeyance, and took on the life of an inconsequential servant. He entered our life with all of its quarrels and discord, its arrogance and deceit, all of its godlessness, its self-serving spiritualities and misleading religions. He was met not with the worship which was his due, but by great hostility against himself. That's the God-man. He offers no explanation in his genealogical account of Jesus. But in that genealogy, Matthew writes of the immense humility of King Jesus. For the past two months, we've been examining various attributes of the kingship of Christ. This evening, I want to point us to an anomaly of his kingship, and that is his humility. From the genealogy in Matthew 1, let's observe three attributes of the humility of the great King, Jesus. Three attributes of the humility of the great King, Jesus. First of all, let us see the humble King who redeems sinners. The humble King who redeems sinners. As you read through this list, and I won't take the time to do it right now, but perhaps you might do it tomorrow. We don't know all of the particulars of all the people in this list. But what we do know about many of these ancestors of the Messiah is sobering. Sin. Even extraordinary, unreasonable sin. Is not just in this list. It just seems like it's common in this list. Consider verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. You remember Judah, don't you? Judah was the loving brother who sold Joseph into slavery into Egypt by hand of the Ishmaelites. Verse 3, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Remember Tamar? She was the daughter-in-law of Judah who pretended to be a prostitute to get someone to provide her with a child to carry on her lineage. And she ended up being impregnated by her father-in-law. 
That's right. Incest is in the genealogy of Jesus. Incest is part of the heritage and the genealogy of the Messiah. You know the story about Rahab. She's in verse 5. That's the woman who didn't pretend to be a prostitute, but was a prostitute. And you know the stories of David and Bathsheba. Verse 6, Jesse was the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, parentheses, who had been the wife of Uriah. That's the story of a sordid tale of adultery, cover-up, drunkenness or attempted drunkenness. David trying to get Uriah drunk so that he would spend the evening with his wife, which he didn't do, and then ultimately murder. And then, of course, there's Solomon and his thousand wives. Well, 300 wives and 700 concubines. Many of whom pulled his heart away from God. And then following Solomon, then the nation just virtually disintegrated. The nation splits in two, the northern kingdom taking the, to- the ten tribes, the southern kingdom taking the two tribes of Judah and, and uh, Benjamin. And then just a litany of evil kings. No good kings at all ever in the northern kingdom and about 50-50 in the southern kingdom. It's just immense tragedy all the way through that list. One writer has said about this list, a careful look at the descendants both of Abraham and David reveals people who are often characterized by unfaithfulness, immorality, adultery, and apostasy. Listen to what he says. But God's dealing with them was always characterized by grace. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, was sent to overcome the failures both of those men and all of their descendants and to accomplish what they could have never accomplished. The King of Grace came through the line of two sinful men. The Messiah is not the only one that comes through a line of sinful men. We too come from sinful men. In fact, we all come from one sinful man, Adam. We have inherited his sin nature. And we and all of our ancestors have proven that Romans 3 is true. There is none who is righteous. No, not one. But the story of God as told in the genealogy of the Messiah Jesus, is the story of redemption and salvation. God takes what is worst about us, our sin, and uses it to glorify Himself and to make it good in our lives. Yes, you and I are also sinners like the people in this story, and we have family members who have all sinned, And we and our families and our friends still sin on a far too regular basis. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is the end of the genealogy that terminates 
on King Jesus, who in humility comes to buy our sin, to redeem us from sin, and to bring us back into fellowship with God the Father. The end of the story terminates on the humble king who redeems every kind of vile sin and liberates us from that sin by means of his humility. In this account, we have the humble king who redeems sinners. There's another characteristic of this humble king in the genealogy, and that is the humble king associates with the outcast. It has been said that the average man will bristle if you say his father was dishonest, but he will brag a little bit if he discovers that his great-grandfather was a pirate. That's right. Somebody is going to come up to me at the end of this service and say, my great-grandfather was a pirate. Really, he was. There's no bragging about this list. Not only were many of the identifiable people conspicuous sinners, but they were outcasts. They were the kind of people you would not want to identify yourself with. If your child came home with one of these people and said, Mom, Dad, I want to get married to this person, you would shake your head and you'd be on the phone calling Pastor Keith, hopefully him, or maybe me, and saying, what do I do? We've already mentioned incest, prostitution, murder, But beyond that are the kind of people in this list that nobody in Israel would want to identify with. We mentioned Rahab, verse 5. She was a prostitute. The problem was not just that she was a prostitute, but she was a Canaanite. She was an enemy of Israel. Why would you bring in your enemy? Why would you embrace the enemy and make them family? Ruth, verse 5, likewise, was a Moabite. A Moabite person is someone who descends from the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. The very existence of the Moabites was repugnant to Israel. It, it spoke to them of immorality and particularly immoral sexual relationships. In fact, Deuteronomy tells us in chapter 23, No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. They're out. They're outcasts. There are four women that are mentioned in this lineage. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Every one of them outcast. Outcasts because they were tainted by sexual sin, either because of their own sexual choices or because of their heritage. Two of them were foreigners outside the covenantal promises to Israel. They were, from Israel's perspective, women and people to be shunned, cast out, not identified with. And God weaves them into the story of the Messiah. 
He doesn't just weave them into the story. He makes them essential to the story. Critical to the story. Folds them into the messianic line. Who does that? Who takes people that are outside the enemies, the reprobates, and says, mine? God does. That's who. He does it because of magnanimous grace that gives what is undeserved to the unworthy. We do well to remember that you and I are recipients of a similar kind of grace. God made a promise with the nation of Israel that they would be his people. He didn't make that promise with Moab, with Babylon, with Greece, with Rome or the United States of America. He made that promise with Israel. Brothers and sisters, that means that you and I, just like Rahab and Ruth, are outsiders, outcasts, outside the plan and purposes of God, at least from the standpoint of the covenant with Israel. And by His grace, He has grafted us into the branch called Israel. And we, Paul says in Ephesians 2, who are far away, Outside the promises, outside the nation, without hope in this world, were brought near to God through Christ. God brings in the outcast and puts them into the lineage of the Messiah. And he also makes those outcasts his children. And we don't need to look very far to see outcasts. We can just look around the room and say all of us are outcasts who by the grace of Christ, the grace of the humble king, were brought near. We have a humble king who redeems sinners. We have a humble king who associates with the outcast. And we have a humble king, thirdly, who is a great king. We have a humble king who is a great king. There are two genealogies about Jesus. One here in Matthew chapter 1. The other is in Luke chapter 3. The two genealogies are different. Matthew starts at the beginning and moves forward. Luke starts at the end and moves backward, going all the way back to Adam. Matthew traces Jesus' lineage to David through Joseph, demonstrating that Jesus has a legal right to reign. And Luke traces his lineage to David through Mary, demonstrating that Jesus is a blood descendant of David and thus has a human right to reign and to rule. That's kind of interesting, kind of cool how God weaves those things together. Ah, but there's more significance to the story. Look at verse 12. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of 
Zerubbabel. You may not know the name Jeconiah. He's also known as Jehoiachin. But he was the last king. He was the last Davidic king to rule. And he was, he was an evil king in Judah. He wasn't just an evil king. He was such an evil king that in Jeremiah 22, God says this. Write this man down, Jeconiah. Write this man down childless. A man who will not prosper in his days. For no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. If you come from Jeconiah, you can't rule on the Davidic throne. And Jesus, through Joseph, has his line traced through Jeconiah. But Jesus was not a physical descendant of Joseph. And he was not a physical descendant, therefore, of Jeconiah, though he was still a descendant of David. And so, he's not prohibited from coming to the throne. His line still goes to David. He has a legal right. Joseph's his legal father, though not his biological father. But his biology still goes to David as well, this time through Mary in Luke. So Mary has the regal connection, but not the right to rule. Joseph has the legal right, but he's under the curse. And Jesus, because of the uniqueness of his birth, is able to fulfill the ability to sit on the Davidic throne and and avoid the curse of Jeconiah. Jesus avoids the curse and still has the right to be king. That's amazing. There's something more there, though, as well, isn't there? Because there's another curse that Jesus avoided. Jesus avoided the curse of Jeconiah, but he also avoided the curse of sin, didn't he? That is, he never sinned so that he could perfectly fulfill the righteous law of God and impute a perfect righteousness to us. And by virtue of the the virgin birth, not only did he never sin, but he was avoiding the Adamic curse as one who was not underneath that curse. But he didn't avoid the curse entirely, did he? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that Jesus took on the curse of Adam and He stood in our place. And He absorbed 
all of the wrath that God would have against our sin so that we might be liberated from the wrath of God. Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Jesus, by virtue of avoiding the Adamic and Jeconiah curses, is not himself underneath the curse, but he assumes the curse so that we might avoid the curse and be freed from the curse. He is a humble king, born in humble circumstances to a humble family, but he is a great king who alone can provide our redemption. And it is just what he did. And that all began when God became a man and came in the appearance of a man as an eight-pound baby in Bethlehem. Father, we thank you for the greatness of our Savior Jesus and for the humility of our King Jesus. Who though he is entirely God, fully God, yet still was able to assume the mantle of humanity, was willing to identify with sinners to such an extent that even what we would say are astounding sins, Sins of great significance are in his very lineage. And he deigns to identify himself with those who are outcasts. He identified with them in his lineage and he identified himself with them in his time here on earth. For the accusation against him always was, why is he with sinners? Why is he the one who hangs out with prostitutes, with sinners? This is the kind of king we have. One who is humble and associates with the low and the needy. And yet even in that identity, he is still the great king who is able to absolve us of our sin and our guilt. That's why we worship. That's why we remember. That's why we take time every year to think about the advent of Jesus Christ. Because it, along with the cross of Christ, are the most significant events in the history of this world. They are the two events that shape All men for where they will spend eternity, either eternity in heaven with you because of belief in Christ or eternity in hell because of unbelief in Christ. And so, Father, we thank you for the advent of this great king, this humble king, King Jesus, in whose name we pray.
Amen.